hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. When there's wrongdoing, or there's malfeasance, wrongdoing by those in positions of authority, and when there's harm to others, the question on the table is, should there be recognition of this? Should there be repentance? Should those individuals be granted forgiveness? And then in the end, should amnesty be granted? Well, I can tell you this came up this week when it comes to public health errors and the pandemic response. And wow, there is a lot of commentary. Let's get in it with Laura Ingram on the Ingram Angle Fox News. Telling us that it's just time to move on. Writing in the Atlantic, Brown University economist Emily Oster argues that we need to let bygones be bygones on the COVID debate and not relitigate the past. We have to put these fights aside and declare a pandemic amnesty, forgiving the hard calls that people had no choice but to make with imperfect knowledge. LA County closed its beaches in the summer of 2020. Now, ex post facto, this makes no sense, uh, but we need to learn from our mistakes and then let them go. Nice try, but no way. First off, there is little sign that those responsible for the disastrous decisions actually learned much, if anything at all. Where were the mea culpas from the shutdown fanatics like Anthony Fauci and Deborah Birx? First, they gave horrendous advice to Donald Trump that led to his decision to shut down the entire country. This never should have happened. It did enormous damage to our children, our economy, our constitutional rights, and the American psyche that we're still seeing play out today. Almost everything they advocated, other than maybe washing your hands and covering your face when you sneeze, was wrong. Like this. If you're never more than, if you're never within six feet of any single individual, um, then you've controlled the virus. We're asking the young people to help us with this mitigation strategy by staying out of the bars, staying out of the restaurants, really trying to distance yourself. Don't get the attitude, well, I'm young, I'm invulnerable. Do you realize that social distancing was never grounded in science? Never. It was all made up. The single costliest recommendation that CDC made that you had to maintain six feet of distance, that wasn't based on good judgment and good science. They were wrong about the vaccines stopping transmission, too. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. Whoops, false. Most Americans thought the vaccine would stop you from getting COVID altogether. Well, of course, we know that was wrong. You also could transmit the virus if you had the vaccine. The CDC director, Walensky, has been vaxxed and boosted, I think a total of what, five times? And she has COVID again. They were wrong to dismiss natural immunity as well. It turns out acquired immunity through previous infection does in fact provide durable immunity from future infection and it certainly lessens your symptoms if you get it again. 
And do you remember what CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta and the rest of the medical cartel had Americans doing? We do know the virus can live on surfaces, for example, stealing plastic for up to three days. I've used a little glitter here for my kids to show you what the virus might be like. I'm just going to clean all the virus off here. I don't need to do too much. It's a pretty sensitive virus. You don't need to use any kind of specific wipe either. Any household cleaner will do. Okay, I forgot that one. A few weeks later, CNN had to explain that, no, you don't actually need to wipe down your box of spaghetti or leave your Amazon packages in the garage. How embarrassing. But these people were drunk on their own power. Anthony Fauci even wanted to control your holiday plans. If you get vaccinated and your family's vaccinated, you can feel good about enjoying a typical Thanksgiving, Christmas, with your family and close friends. You've got to be careful when you go into large public indoor spaces where there are a lot of people there. And that's the reason why you should be wearing a mask under those circumstances. I mean, obvious the N95 is the best, but a regular surgical mask as well as a cloth mask is fine. Wait a second, it's fine? Is he talking about those filthy masks hanging on everyone's rearview mirrors? The masks that they grab before they dashed into a store? Perhaps the worst part of all of this was the vicious campaign to smear and deplatform anyone who questioned their pronouncements, including world-renowned doctors and researchers. Remember the Great Barrington Declaration? From our top academic institutions, they even blacklisted people. These people have been threatened and excommunicated by medical associations and, of course, social media platforms. And despite how wrong the so-called experts were on a myriad issues, the retribution against dissident doctors continues to this day in the name of protecting public health and combating the spread of dangerous dis disinformation. How ironic, since they're the worst purveyors of it of all. Famed cardiologist and member of my medicine cabinet, Peter McCullough, could even lose his board certification for what he said over the last two plus years. He told MedPage Med that he's appealing the recommendation by the American Board of Internal Medicine, uh, and he's persecuted for stating the truth that the government was playing with math on the virus's true lethality. That was another issue of his. Well, now we see that he and others who spoke about the lethality of the virus were right. A new analysis of COVID deaths shows that early on, before vaccines were available, the infection fatality rate for people younger than the age of 70 was below 1%. And for those under the age of 19, it was 0.0003%. Now, given the analysis we just read, it's less lethal, lethal than the flu to a majority of the population. That is stunning. So-called public health officials duped America. As the CEO of Pfizer, of course, he became a multi-billionaire. Governors who made the right calls, like Ron DeSantis, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Christy Noem in South Dakota, were made out to be pariahs by the media medical cartel. Meanwhile, the real data now shows that the anti-lockdown governors were right, and the governors of states like New Jersey, New York, California, Illinois, were wrong. Their people knew it, and many of them fled, never to return to those states. There have to be ramifications for the faulty decisions and the mistakes that were made. Otherwise, they'll just do the same power grabs the next time they announce a crisis. 
I don't know, maybe the next crisis won't be a pandemic. It'll be a climate crisis or a racism crisis. But those same types of experts will feel free to issue unconstitutional mandates and extend emergency powers for as long as they can get away with it. We need to sustain our investment uh, in COVID. So we still have work to do that. It's going to require ongoing investment from Congress, ongoing investment in our country so that we can continue to make sure everybody in our country has the protection that they need from COVID-19. How do we get protected from you? It's not enough to say we did the best we could or we tried our best. It's complex. We didn't know all the facts. In the real world, when people make mistakes, there are consequences. When companies make big mistakes, the company changes leadership or goes out of business. Heck, when a football coach keeps losing game after game, he usually gets fired. The public health officials who got COVID wrong, the governors who got it wrong, the senators who refused to speak up for children locked out of schools, they all need to be removed from positions of any authority. They cannot be trusted again with power, period. None of them have admitted they were wrong or shown true repentance. They certainly haven't recommended restitution for those who were materially harmed, including needless loss of life. They were harmed by the mistakes in the knowing falsehoods. None of them have urged that legal protections actually be put in place to prevent these types of abuses from ever happening again. And this is something that Republicans, when they win the majority again, will have to insist upon. The angle isn't hoping for some symbolic impeachment drama playing out day after day. What we do need, though, is real oversight with professional investigations led by outside experts and backed by the power of the congressional purse. This is why Democrats are so frantic about Trump's pledge to reform the civil service. Because everything they do within the civil service is designed to insulate themselves by any meaningful scrutiny. How dare you question America's doctor, Anthony Fauci? He's been a loyal civil servant for over 40 years. And one of the main reasons that we have a growing populist movement in the United States is that for two decades, the American establishment failed to police itself and correct its mistakes. But going forward, this must change. And a reckoning on the disastrous results of our COVID policies, it's a good place to start. No amnesty. And that's the angle. Joining me now is Congressman Jim Banks, chair of the Republican Study Committee, and Harmeet Dillon, civil rights attorney and chairwoman of the Republican National Lawyers Association. Harmeet, what this Atlantic writer is suggesting is something that, like, it's kind of like a toxic forgiveness in that it rejects accountability and allows for the same types of individuals to abuse power again. That cannot happen again. Well, absolutely, Laura. Emily Oster's piece just completely ignores how wrong these people were. She even, uh, you know, jokes about her son yelling at somebody on a trail as if it's, it's, it's some kind of a joke. And these same people are still running our lives. They're still the ones dictating government policy. They're still the ones telling us which doctors can have their licenses and who can speak on the Internet. And 
All the state laws, Laura, for the most part, that allowed governors to abuse our rights are still in place with virtually no changes whatsoever, other than perhaps the duration of an emergency period. So I have to say that this is a bipartisan problem, Laura. Even Republican governors reveled in their power. Even Republican governors declared some businesses essential and non-essential. And just about everybody in the country suffered mightily from this. There are no reparations for the people who lost their jobs, the people who lost their businesses, the people who lost their hope, their loved ones. And people are very angry. They are seething. And until we have some accountability for that and we change the power dynamic that allowed this to happen, we will not have peace in this country over this issue, Laura. And I'll never get those years back that I fought in the courts and lost and lost and lost and finally won. But we can never let this happen again. Yeah, well, Congressman, we still have... Our, our military subject to these vaccine mandates. We still have healthcare professionals who cannot get uh, their jobs back without a vaccine when they have already had COVID, recovered from it, obviously have some durable natural immunity. We know the, vac the vaccine doesn't stop transmission anyway, so the whole point of the vaccine mandate has been eliminated. But this still remains. Congress has got to do something about this if you guys win majority. We have to use the power of the purse, Laura, to, to force the Pentagon to bring back all of these uh, uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines who they've flushed out of the military for not taking the vaccine. That's absolutely the case. I just spoke with a, a leader in the military who I served with in Afghanistan four or five years ago who was troubled by the number of, of troops who he was uh, seeing being flushed out who are great, uh, great Americans who want to serve our country. And this administration is continuing to force them out. So this this is an area that we have to use the power of the purse when we are in the majority uh, to force them to do the right thing and uh, allow these men and women to serve. Yeah, Italy finally got rid of its vaccine mandate for all its health care workers and is paying restitution, Harmeet, to those who lost their jobs in Italy. That's how far they're going to rectify what went wrong there. Now, a, a major lawsuit, Harmeet, this is right up your alley, I hope will strike a blow to this collusion between the medical cartel, big tech, and the government censors. Missouri v. Biden is the case, and it's uncovering astonishing evidence of entrenched censorship. And so far, 67 officials or agencies have been accused in the lawsuit of violating the First Amendment by pressuring Facebook, Twitter, and Google to censor users for alleged misinformation. Harmi, this is so much more pervasive than people realize. Absolutely, Laura. Uh, again, at the Center for American Liberty, we were ahead of the curve. We filed a lawsuit on this very issue um, almost two years ago now. Rogan O'Hanley, our client, was censored by the California government, Alex Padilla, now a senator. And, you know, court rejected it. The court said, oh, that's not a First Amendment violation. Come to find that the federal government has been doing the exact same thing on a massive scale, and to be very clear, using your tax dollars to hire so-called outside consultants to do their dirty work. Now, even the ACLU has finally woken up from its sleep on the First Amendment and said, this is a violation of the First Amendment. There must be a bipartisan agreement that it is never right for the government to censor our speech and tell private corporations to censor our speech. They cannot use agents to do that. That's a First Amendment conspiracy, and it must be stopped. Yeah, this is going to have to go to the Supreme Court, and I, I would hope they would do the right thing here. I want to read one more um, bit from this piece, uh, Congressman, by Emily Oster from Brown University. Rather than debating the role that messaging about COVID vaccines had in, the, had in this decline, pediatricians and public health officials will need to work together 
and politicians will need to consider school mandates. Congressman, 0.0003% lethality for children. Would a House majority even consider funding schools that force children to get this still experimental shot in their arms before they're able to attend school? Uh, absolutely not. And we, we will hold, when we get the majority, we will hold these bureaucrats accountable who force this uh, outrageous these outrageous mandates on our kids uh, that we have to start with that we have to hold them accountable this bombshell story Laura shows me that I, I thought big tech was the biggest threat to free speech and now we're finding out that our that the Biden administration the federal government pa uh, pushing uh, mandates like these censorship attacks on our on our First Amendment our free speech we have to hold them all accountable for it D representative Dan Bishop from North Carolina introduced a bill today that would strengthen uh, the penalties on those government officials uh, who do this, uh, the, who, who push these types of attacks on our First Amendment, we have to hold them accountable for it. Congressman Harmeet, thank you tonight. Wow, that was one of the best monologues and opener I've heard on uh, Fox News, the Ingram angle, Laura Ingram. Uh, you heard my mention, I, I wasn't on, and I think it was just great to have other people on, particularly Congressman lawyers of standing, uh, to start to hear these issues crystallized that we've been talking about on America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, for going on three years. It's been an evolving story, but you can see that it's becoming understood that our governments have turned against their own people and have created a uh, crushing censorship uh, and efforts at reprisal and damage of anybody who speaks out against the government narrative. I learned the American Board of Internal Medicine, after review of my responses to their initial allegations, now uh, has uh, made a recommendation that my credentials be stripped, my board certification in internal medicine and cardiology be stripped. So as a backdrop, the American Board of Internal Medicine uh, provides credentialing. They uh, are the body that says that, in fact, a residency has been completed. They look at all the documents. They have uh, learning materials that must be accomplished. And then they administer examinations, very rigorous uh, examinations for initial board certification and then recertification, which there's a variety of pathways, but they come up for me every 10 years. So I've chosen voluntarily to be in the maintenance of certification for internal medicine. That means every 10 years I put my career on the line. I've taken now four of these internal medicine examinations. I've passed them. My clinical track record in internal medicine has no flaws. Uh, I trained at, at the time, the number one residency in the United States, University of Washington in Seattle. For cardiology, because I did that later in life, I have now taken three of those cardiovascular exams. Again, there are no defects in my cardiology clinical track record. Um, I am uh, viewed as you know, a top clinician in my community. I'm one of the most published people in cardiology in the world in history and the most published person in heart-kidney interactions in the world in history. My information that I've published, the new knowledge that I've generated for medical science and history are used on the board exams for internal medicine, but yet they've attacked me. And 
They did it in the following manner. In September of 2021, the American Board of Internal Medicine for the first time announced an initiative different than credentialing, different than their usual activities. They said specifically for COVID that they were going to hunt out misinformation. They were going to try to find doctors that they determined were uh, disseminating misinformation or made public statements that were incorrect and then hunt them down. And for me, they went back in time. So they created the new policy in September and they went back to March of 2021 when I testified under oath in the Texas Senate and took issue with statements I made regarding herd immunity, lethality of the virus, deaths after vaccination, among others. And then they picked other public statements. Now, in a very lengthy document, they put this out to me in May 26, 2022. I responded with a even greater length document supporting every single piece of evidence that uh, supported the statements. And even the ones that, you know, I answered questions on the fly under oath uh, to the best of my ability. And uh, with this process, it's obvious there is no privilege or immunity even to be called for government testimony. This uh, put me in professional jeopardy. Now I learn on October 19th, 2022, that a credentials committee meeting was held. I was unable to attend it. Uh, the doctors who attended it, none of whom have ever made a public statement about COVID-19 themselves. None are considered experts in COVID-19. Multiple attorneys att attended, and they said none of my responses were convincing. So therefore, they are going to press forward with um, this process. Now, they've given me till November 17th to submit an appeal. I must have an attorney. I must select witnesses greater consumption of time and resources, and ever greater jeopardy for my career as someone who's spoken out. I've been asked to speak out. I don't, uh, you know, I don't seek any of these interviews. I didn't request any of these uh, testimonies. I was called forward as a leader in academic medicine, and I performed to my best of my ability. So while those who are part of the government narrative appear through the Oster editorial in The Atlantic, are asking for or potentially will seek am amnesty. Doctors like myself and those in the circles, many of you are, I consider, you know, we're all on the same team. We're being called out and continue to be called out and receive professional reprisal, uh, damage to our careers, damage to our families, uh, it was brought up in the Ingram piece that the military are continued to be uh, harassed and many kicked out of the military because they won't take the vaccine. We have a letter from Congress, 47 congressmen have written Lloyd Austin, the Department of Defense, and said, drop the mandates, drop the vaccines. They don't work. They're not safe. Call back the military, give them back pay, and let's end this. Uh, in New York City, a a case was taken all the way to the New York Supreme Court and said, drop these mandates, drop the vaccines, call the New York City workers back and give them back pay. And thankfully, the court decided in favor of the plaintiffs, and that's happening as we speak. But New York uh, Mayor uh, uh, Eric Davis is basically uh, going to appeal this going to try to actually double down or triple down. That's the behavior we've seen through the pandemic. 
So I do think this issue of malfeasance, wrongdoing by those in position of authority, investigation to figure out who did what, and then ultimately, if there is repentance, hearing people admit that they're wrong, have them say they're sorry, and then this process of forgiveness, people who are violated, people who were in some cases just destroyed, and we can't go back and get the loved ones who are lost those families will have to consider forgiveness. And then ultimately, from a governmental perspective, a court perspective, a justice perspective, amnesty would have to be considered. We are in incredible times. There's no doubt about it. And each and every one of us are going to have to go through this. There are people in your family who pressured the vaccines and then someone suffered a disastrous outcome. There are people in your uh, work circles, church circles, school, military, travel, that did things that made others feel uncomfortable that ultimately led to injury, sometimes disability, and, and in, in the most reprehensible way, death that could have been avoided. And so we're going to have to revisit this issue over and over again. But these, um, these monologues and statements popped up this week because of that editorial that was published in The Atlantic by Emily Oster. Atlantic, for those of you outside the United States, is a more of a liberal, left-wing oriented journal. And so uh, it is interesting how from the political left, this request for, for uh, amnesty or suggestion that this should happen would come up. And I, I thought the reels put together were, were excellent. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement is a combination of calming herbs, amino acids, minerals, and sleep hormone support for the four stages of the human sleep cycle. Fall asleep, stay asleep, get a deep sleep, and achieve REM or rapid eye movement sleep. This is very important. So there are combinations that address in this single product the ability to fall asleep easily. There are others that help the body lower the body temperature, which is normal during sleep and still others that cause a deep and lasting sleep. That's what so many people are after. And finally, interestingly, combinations that help creativity boosting during REM sleep. I can tell you, I use this one personally. It's in a microgel formula. I had a patient this last week who has long COVID syndrome and she has terrible GI side effects and she has GI hypomotility and said, listen, she's not even tolerating pills or these chalky, large, vitamins. I said, go to Healthy Cell. Get the Healthy Cell line. We use it in post-COVID syndrome patients. And this product particularly will help sleep get on track. Now, I tell people, listen, take it every night and do so for months and months. The body likes regular administration of any exogenous substance. Don't take it on and off. It's not like a sleeping pill. This is something you take every night to get high-quality sleep back into your day and you feel better during the day after having better quality sleep at night. So go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulvidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the microphone for the first time, I can't believe I got him, Russell Gonnering, MD. Dr. Gonnering went to um, undergraduate at Boston College and then went on to medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He stayed on there for his ophthalmology fellowship. He went on to get a subspecial fellowship in oculoplastic surgery. He had spent uh, some time away as uh, a, um, a European experience in Vienna, uh, Austria, and had uh, training and studies there. He had a long practice in ophthalmology and retired in 2017 and has taken up the issue of medical ethics, contemporary medical ethics. And boy, what a time it is for medical ethics with everything we're seeing uh, here today. So I want to ask him about his new Substack, which is, I think, one of the best ones out there that I've seen. And then we want to get into a discussion on uh, medical ethics as uh, they've applied over the last three years. And this whole issue that came up this week about amnesty. So Dr. Garnery, welcome to the McCullough Report. Well, thank you very much, Dr. McCullough. Well, let's kick it off. Uh, what generated your interest in medical ethics and related topics? Well, you know, it's a good question. It's, it's kind of one of those things where you just fall from one thing to another. Uh, I had spent, um, while I was in, in practice, I had also spent uh, time in continuous quality improvement and had been the chief quality officer at the hospital where I had been working. And I got involved in performance improvement. And um, in, um, in 2006, I, I herniated a cervical disc and I had to stop surgery. So I, I really um, had to have a major shift in my practice. I could still see patients, uh, non-surgical patients, but I, I wanted to, to take a tack and, and explore uh, improving my interest in, in, in quality improvement. So I, I got a master's degree from the business school at, at the University of Southern California. And, uh, and that got me interested in, in organizational culture and uh, organizational performance. And certainly ethics is a major, major uh, underpinning of organizational culture. I had worked with a, uh, a fellow by the name of uh, David Logan, who uh, wrote a book called Tribal Leadership. And David was my mentor, professor when I was at USC. And we did some work afterwards on organizational culture and our definition of or organizational culture was the the uh, pattern of and capacity for constructive adaptation based upon a shared history, core values, purpose, and future, seen through a diversity of perspective. So it was that, that co those core values and the, and the, uh, 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 the, the purpose that, that, that really made me see that 
a, an organization, be it a medical organization or any other organization, really depended heavily on its ethical behavior. And of course, in 2020, uh, things just just really, really started hitting uh, a new level of, of what appeared to be ethical lapses on the parts of, of medical leaders and certainly on the part of medical educators. And, uh, and that's what really, really piqued my interest in this. Uh, is, is how do we go about making sure that our health professionals are grounded in a strong uh, understanding of, of ethical behavior? And it still it still is something that is 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 really a passion of mine. And reading the the article um, by Oster in the Atlantic um, kind of lit my fuse, to be honest with you because it seems so totally out of place and totally a wrong way of thinking. And that, that's what that's what uh, uh, prompted me to, to write that, that one substack. Um, it was article. excellent. Now, uh, uh, tell me over the course of the pandemic, if you could pick the top three breaches of medical ethics, what would they be? Well, I mean, certainly the informed consent is is one of them. Uh, we, we completely threw it out the window um, in, in regards early treatment as well as in the forced vaccination. Uh, the other one is the dictate victim of primum non nocere. You know, we were harming people all the time, and it didn't seem as though people were bothered by that. And people became collateral damage in this in this idiotic battle against a virus and i think uh i think the third one w would be the use of terror uh to control a population and the medical field um, was unfortunately absolutely complicit in in fostering boy that's really succinctly and well summarized i uh was asked to comment on the emily oster um, Atlantic piece on this about jumping all the way to amnesty. And I thought about it and listened to some other commentary from uh, Del Bigtree and others. And uh, it's, it seems like the, the first step is uh, that there has to be some breach, some malfeasance, wrongdoing by those in positions of authority. And then the next step would be repentance. That is actually recognizing that someone did something wrong and then actually admitted it and expressing remorse or sorrow, regret for doing it. Then the next step would be forgiveness, the person who was wronged or the people wronged to forgiveness. Then the last step would be amnesty. Would you see it the same way? Oh, I, I absolutely would. I, I looked up the definition of amnesty as luck would have it, have it just about three hours ago because I was doing some more thinking about that article. And it, it made the point that amnesty was a pardon. It wasn't even forgiveness. It was It was a pardon. So instead of having a um, organizational um, inquiry and finding somebody guilty, you know, we, we've skipped right away to the, the pardon of some and all uh, activity that is still ongoing. And th that's the thing that where, where amnesty is in, in COVID is so totally off base because the, the very things that they're seeking amnesty for although they don't articulate it, because I don't think they've even come up with, you know, what are we, 
what are what, what are we? I think that might have been Dell's uh, Dell's uh, big big message too uh, was that you know you first of all you've got to tell us what it is that you're seeking amnesty for, but we they they, they want pardoning for something that is still going on. So they're they're still doing it. There, there's no remorse. There's no repentance. It's an ongoing action, but they just don't want us to to do anything about it. And I find that's, that's absolutely almost like an unlimited uh, get out of jail free card. You know, the CDC, Rochelle Lewinsky in August had announced that the CDC had made large mistakes and they should own them. But she didn't say, say what the mistakes were. And then others have have asked for examples. And I've thought of a few, I think, clear cut examples. I think just clear uh, one would be the use of intravenous remdesivir in the hospital. You know, at first uh, at our hospital, when COVID-19 rolled in and we're scrambling, trying to figure out what to do, and remdesivir uh, came as the first emergency use authorized intravenous product, people said, well, listen, let's give it a try. But by November of 2020, Russ, the WHO came out and said, listen, the data are conclusive, including their large trial. Remdesivir does not improve mortality, and in some people causes kidney injury and liver damage. And remdesivir, all capital letters, should not be used in the hospital. And the fact that uh, the, the U.S. Uh, Health and Human Services Department uh, and the Center for Medicaid and Medicaid Services um, actually put a premium to incentivize remdesivir use against that warning, to me, it ought to come up as a, a clear example of, of wrongdoing, making a mistake. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, remdesivir had, had failed its clinical trial, you know, in, in, in spite of in spite of Dr. Fauci insisting that that anything we use have a have a randomized uh, clinical trial, remdesivir had that and it and it failed it. It failed it twice. And, and that and the WHO synthesized all this. And then in Lancet in May of 2022, it revisited uh, all the data the WHO Solidarity Group, and concluded they were right, that more studies came in. In fact, remdesivir didn't save lives and clearly had the toxicity that people recognized. So I think remdesivir is a clear example of just not reconsidering or rediscussing things. It, you know, Remdesivir had only been used a few months in the United States. There should have been emergency meetings, uh, should have been uh, health and human services committees across the country figuring which hospitals are still using remdesivir. Let's get this off off the formularies. Instead, uh, that that didn't, uh, you know, that absolutely didn't happen. You know, I think another clear cut and broad example uh, is uh, the 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 act of suppression of early treatment uh, of all forms of early treatment. All forms of early treatment were undermined uh, all the way through the early use of um, uh, generic available drugs, and then to, um, I think, undermining of monoclonal antibodies. It just kept going and going. Uh, and to this day, uh, none of the health systems, none of the government agencies, none of the public health uh, clinics, none of them have multi-drug treatment protocols for patients. It, it, in a sense, they've left patients behind, e even though there are some EUA products. I, I, Peter, I, 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 for the life of me, I'm flabbergasted by this, and I'm, I'm even more flabbergasted by um, the the complicity and the, the, the willingness of my medical colleagues, especially in academic medicine, to accept this. You know, I, I, um, I lost some family members in the Holocaust, 
um, I'm, I'm not Jewish. Um, they weren't Jewish. They were Serbs that were m murdered in the Senovats concentration camp by the uh, fascists in the former Yugoslavia um, in, the, in the 1940s. And um, I've been keenly interested in why is it that professional people flocked to the, the fascist mindset in that awful time in European history. Um, the doctors were, were, I think, the number one profession that joined the Nazi party early. And one of my reasons for going over to Vienna, actually, was to try and understand what was it about, about that time period and that geographic area that allowed all of this madness to happen. And, you know, I kept on naively thinking that there would be some uh, tragic flaw in the Germanic soul. Uh, but I went over there and I realized that, you know, it could happen anywhere. Now, this was in 1969, 1970. So, uh, but I came back thinking, you know, uh, these people aren't really that much different than we are. And given the right set of circumstances, the internal and external pressures, uh, something like that could happen here in the United States. And, you know, it did. It, did. it, it happened and it happened quickly. I think some of it was very uh, active and intentional. A lot of it was just a, like a passive uh, oblivion. And isn't there, um, you know, I know there's a principle in many faiths, certainly in the Christian faith, that if you stand by and, and let some atrocity happen, and you know it's wrong, you've committed the wrongdoing yourself. You're just as guilty as a person committing the wrongdoing. Is there a principle like that that's in conventional medical ethics? Uh, I, I mean, I think we, for decades, if not centuries, we, we live by the, the, the dictate that you first do no harm. And, um, and doing no harm means not just actively doing harm, but, but, not, but not passively sitting back and watching that harm occur. Or, or, or at least revisiting it. You know, hospitals never had meetings or grand rounds to, to revisit the early outpatient treatment approach. Uh, we, we didn't see any um, multi-drug treatment protocols, original protocols come forward from major academic centers. Um, and, you know, it was years and, and they would come in typically from uh, relatively underdeveloped countries. People were just doing their best. There was no funding for it. And it almost seemed to me as if, and I explained it in a lot of interviews, that the medical community, I think at first was gripped in fear. The idea is that, listen, I could get the illness myself. So therefore, I'm not going to step forward and treat it. I'm not going to get my clinic contaminated. I'm, I'm going to steer clear of this. Just have people stay at home. And if they get really sick, go to the ER, and then the ER will be braced to receive these um, patients. So I think initially, I think it was physicians acting in fear and in self-preservation. Do you agree? There were numerous exceptions, yourself included. George Fareed, and of course, Zed, Zev Zelenko, um, Dr. Tyson, um, Dr. Smith in, in New Jersey. I mean, there were so many people, you know, over in France. Uh, there were so many people who went against that. And, and, you know, there's a whole tradition in medicine of people, of people going into the, into the areas of contagion. 
and 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 fearlessly uh, going about treating these people. And and certainly we saw that in the nursing profession, we saw so many so many good solid uh, clinical people, people who actually took care of patients, nurses who took care of patients who did the right thing. But where it fell down, it fell down in the leadership. It fell down in the, the leadership of our public health agencies, people who never took the care of a patient. Uh, it fell down in the people who make policy. Uh, and it, it, that's where we really need to have some kind of a some kind of a reckoning. You know, in my Substack, I divided the individuals up in this. I call it the COVID disaster now, rather than a pandemic, because the worst of it may have been our response to it rather than the actual viral disease itself. But, you know, we had the architects, we had the enablers, and we had the victims. And any kind of a resolution of that, of the whole COVID disaster, needs to take into account all three of those individual groups. Certainly the architects have to be punished. The victims, such as yourself, need to be made whole. The victims who died, the people who died, who lost their businesses, who lost their loved ones, who lost their dream, the kids who lost their education. I don't know how we're going to be, how there will ever be compensated. But somehow we need to understand a way to deal with the victims of this. And there are so many of them. But then we've got this vast intermediary group of the enablers. And some of these certainly were more guilty than others. Some just wanted to go along to get along. But there's a continuum there that's going to take a long time and a lot of lot of inquiry, especially in, in academic medicine and in, in medical education, to, to understand the root cause as to how we allowed this to happen. And we have to we have to uh, mete out the justice, if one will, uh, to the enablers and, and rehabilitate the ones who are able to be rehabilitated. How I mean, I understand how people who are getting the grants based upon their their towing the line of NIH and and you know the the deans of the medical schools and the leaders of the of the medical societies. I understand how they feel like their star, their, their, their future is, is attached to the star of, 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 of the, the enablers here. But what I don't get, I, I don't get how just ordinary physicians have been so duped, so many of them duped into silence and duped into doing this. You know, usually, usually we were kind of, kind of uh, rebels, you know? I mean, certainly my generation, your generation, came through questioning authority all the time, maybe over-questioning authority. But now, for some reason, there's no question. But isn't there typically an age gradient? Younger people question authority and older people tend not to. I mean, it seems like the younger doctors, they seem to be absent from the conversation altogether. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, and I, I, I'm racking my brain on this. You know, I can't help but think that somewhere along the line, we have to change the way we educate health professionals. And again, the nurses are doing a better job of this than we are, but we do not value critical thinking. We don't value courage. We don't value ethics. Uh, we don't value moral reasoning ability. Oh, let me, let me give you an example of something I want you to work through. Um, I was told uh, recently that a cardiologist 
told his patients he refuses to see them in the office unless they're fully vaccinated. If they're not fully vaccinated, he's, he's having his staff cancel the appointments and telling him he refuses to see them. Can you unpack that from an ethical perspective? Well, yeah, I, I can do it very easily. The guys, the woman or whoever it is, <coughs> is, uh, is certainly unethical. This has never been acceptable behavior on the part of the medical profession. Going, I mean, going back to the Black Death, I imagine you had, you had physicians back then not wanting to see people too. But it wasn't it wasn't champion. And you know, now we have medical, so-called medical ethicists. I'm sure you've seen these uh, these uh, screeds online just like I have, of of uh, excusing the <coughs> of appointments for people who are not vaccinated and somehow saying that that's actually a laudable thing because you don't want to you don't want to uh, pose any, any uh, ill effect to your other patients or your staff, even though we know that's not true. But we've had, we've had medical ethicists, medical educators articulate. I, I, I don't get it. I, I, the only thing I can think of is that it's, it's been a massive, massive failure in medical education. But Russ, even today, so you know, as of September um, 2022, and then October 22 for short, the CDC said, unless somebody actively has COVID uh, in the healthcare setting, that we don't need to wear masks. And the CDC has said that a fully vaccinated person is indistinguishable for an unva- unvaccinated person in a public health perspective. But yet there are doctors who are requiring patients to be fully vaccinated and still requiring masks in the office, even though they're not dealing with COVID. What is going on in the human mind when even the regulatory agencies that they've bought into so much and they've followed faithfully so much are telling them that it's okay, we can back down, and they refuse to back down? What's going on? Well, I think it's the fear that was that was carefully inculcated on the population as well as the, the healthcare professionals that was, was carefully seeded. I mean, one can, I, I can't help, I, I can't accept the fact that it, uh, it, it has to have been a part of this because, you know, when, when your article came out uh, on early treatment, uh, it had to be shot down because, because if there was, if there was an effective treatment for this, which you'd think that everybody would be, would be praying, they were praying for this. It, it, was, it gave people hope, but it also, it also would have, uh, necessitated canceling of the the experimental use authorization. So I, I can't help. I know this sounds like I'm a conspiracy theorist, but I can't help but think that even back in the early days of this, there was an orchestrated attempt to torpedo early treatment because without that, legally we could not have had an, an emergency use authorization of the vaccines, and and that was apparently the the game plan from the beginning. But Russ, Russ, you know, patient, you're not every doctor owns stock in Pfizer. Uh, doctors weren't getting little, you know, bundles of cash on the side in their community practices. Um, pharmacists weren't getting, you know, little payments under the under the counter. 
Uh, what was in the minds of people? There are some uh, news stories, for instance, uh, in uh, somewhere in the central Midwest, there was uh, a poor guy who was trying to bring his loved one some ivermectin in the hospital. And they, uh, they literally, the security guard was frisking him as if he was carrying in a loaded weapon. Um, you know, the, the hospitals, instead of engaging in shared decision-making of just let's decide together what you can take or medication reconciliation, which always says you're allowed to take your home medicines in the hospital, hospitals actually quickly pulled those away and said, no way, you can't take anything you have at home. And you basically are going to get stripped from, you know, getting a fuller treatment of COVID-19. I mean, to me, that's, you know, that's, that, that's like personal injury. It's actually intent to cause harm. You know, Peter, I, I know I'm, I'm probably going to be criticized for saying this, but in my mind, um, there really is a profound spiritual component of this. And evil does exist in the world. Profound evil exists. And when you see things that are unexplainable, like we've been talking about, uh, there, there is no rational way of explaining how this could happen. Well, then you're left with having to speculate, and and certainly a, a valid speculation is we we see the presence of evil all around us every day. You know, whether it's in the crime in the streets or in, in you know horrible things going on in Ukraine, we see there is evil everywhere. Well, why would there be evil involved in our in our response to COVID? And but there never was in other conditions. If if a patient came in with a you know, with, a, um, uh, let's say with heart failure and, and the family said, well, you know, we, uh, we really want you to continue digoxin. And, and I thought, well, you know, digoxin probably is not going to help. Uh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have security strip them down and take away the bottle of digoxin. Um, you know, it seems like th this was so intentional and it was deep in people's minds it was very deep in their minds uh, to do this. And uh, it wasn't just healthcare providers. It was through um, all different uh, walks of life. For instance, you know, we were far into the pandemic when large corporations said that employees had to be vaccinated. And some of the employees said, we don't want to have to take a, get a vaccine. Then the employer said, well, you have to take a test every week. And a lot of these, uh, especially financial services companies, they were all, uh, you know, working at home. They weren't in the workplace whatsoever. And so it begs the question, what's the rationale of someone self-testing at home? And, and is it really punitive? It was the whole goal of this actually to, to harm people. And, and I can only come to one conclusion that in fact, testing in lieu of vaccination for, for home workers was punitive. Oh yeah, yeah. I, 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 that's that's where I see our response uh, as as healthcare professionals, as well as politi politicians, uh, society in general. Our response to this uh, it was really every bit as worse, if not worse, more more harmful than the virus itself. And you know that there. We're, we're, what we really need is we, we really need a, a, a reasoned, rigorous, uh, historical, multi, uh, multi 
multidimensional and multidisciplinary investigation into what happened here. You know, why why did the the media support something that was so awful? You know, and and I I, I don't want to be harping on 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 what happened in Germany and Austria and in, in the 1930s, but you know that was a similar time of madness when because of an ideology things just went haywire in with with normally very very uh, good and and noble people i mean even the clergy was heavily involved my my relatives probably had their throats cut by a franciscan monk uh so i, I it, there's there is this madness that periodically has gripped societies and i can only explain it dr mccullough on the basis that that evil is clearly involved here and one you know may not wish to personify it uh i do uh, i think that there is a force a, a personal force that is active in our physical dimension uh, that is working according to a vastly different spiritual uh, reality than what many of us believe in and in some respect uh th this has been a war that is being waged not just in the physical realm and with with a virus and with social response and political response but but it's one that's a cosmic import that's been going on you know ever since the beginning of time in the judeo-christian uh, uh mindset you know we do look at a, a confrontation of, of good and evil uh extending back to genesis and i i think this is part of the same thing i think we are we are seeing a manifestation of of things that are probably beyond our physical understanding but has spilled over into our our dimension um, wow this has been mind-blowing no we're gonna have to leave it here russ we're gonna just um have to pick up on this later on or certainly uh follow you through your Substack. but this is just a mind-blowing reality there there really is no other explanation outside of there's something going on in a realm uh, a battle between good and evil. You're right. That's that's since the beginning of time. Uh, Doctor Garn, thank you so much for joining us um, on the program. How, how do how do listeners follow you on your Substack? I uh, just look at Substack and my name, Russell Gonring. Uh, I honestly I don't know the exact uh, URL for it, but but if you look at Substack and my name, Russell Gonring, you'll find it. But I'd like to just thank you, Doctor McCullough. For being a selfless, courageous role model for all of us these past few years. And I wish you all the best, and I, I, I hope that you will prevail. I know you will eventually prevail, but please keep up the good work, and we appreciate it so much. Well, thank you so much. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Mm -hmm.